So I mentioned a few moments ago I'm, I'm looking forward to my study leave. I'm going to a conference that I'm, I'm really excited about. And um, unfortunately, in order to do that, I have to, to fly to Southern California for the conference. And I don't like flying. I mean, I, I do like flying. Of course I like flying. We all like flying. Um, I was reading something about the Oregon Trail, and I found out that the Oregon Trail is roughly the same length as the land trip from Anchorage to Seattle. But the Oregon Trail took 160 days. And if you decide to, to drive the Alcan, it'll take you a lot less than that. But if you fly, it'll take you even less because you go a lot faster and you get to kind of cut the corner, right? You don't have to go sideways and then down. You get to go straight. So it's just about a three-hour trip. So I like that part about flying. And the reason I like that is because I dislike all the rest. So the part that's short is the best part about flying. Um, I don't like flying. And in particular, what I don't like about flying is the lines, because increasingly what I find in, in airports, anything to do with flying, is there's two lines now. And one of them is the one that's short. And that's the one that's not for me. So, um, you know, the, the first one, of course, is at TSA. You know, even, even actually, I guess the first one's when you're checking in, you know. So um, you get the express check or whatever. But then there's the TSA one where you kind of all mill together outside the safe zone. And, and honestly, I have real concerns about that because we saw this year in, in um, Europe that that's a place that's a, it's a prime target for terrorists. See, we have these um, uh, things designed to make us safe from terrorism that are at the very edge of the airport closest to where the terrorists might be. So uh, I think that policymakers are trying to figure out how do we respond to, to the reality of terror. And they're increasingly looking at these TSA checkpoints and saying, that's probably not as good as it could be. But in any event, while I'm standing there, I have lots of time to think about, you know, what might be coming up behind me as I watch people with uh, TSA Pre just kind of zoom right through. So I don't like that line, but I especially don't like the line um, when when you're boarding. You know, there's that, that little kind of token barrier thing. You know, it's like a little a little carpet um, with a stripe on it and maybe a little velvet rope. It's not really lanes. It's just designed to make you think that there's lanes so that then you will obediently get in your proper lane. And again, I'm in the lane that's the, the, the not the short lane. So, so I don't like that. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, I'm, I'm a grown up and I, I know how this stuff works. I, I did some thinking and I figured out that if you're in the air for a hundred thousand miles, that means you spent eight and a half days flying. Okay. Which meant you probably spent nearly that long in airports, uh, you know, uh, standing in lines or uh, driving to the airport or driving away from the airport. So you probably spent 15 days to get those, you know, related to, to air travel in order to get those 100,000 miles. And if it's all it takes to make you happy is pre-boarding and an exit row, knock yourself out, you know. God bless you, okay? So, you know, that's, you have, you have earned your short line, so by all means. But, but at the same time, I kind of wish, you know, to me it's kind of an adversarial us versus them relationship. And I wish you wouldn't break solidarity because that's the way I kind of perceive it. When you take that short line, you're, like, you're kind of leaving the rest of us behind. You're, you're breaking solidarity. And, and I don't like that in airports, and I certainly don't like it in churches. And unfortunately, it happens in churches too. Um, and it shouldn't. Churches are supposed to be better than flying. And I think they are, but, you know, 
I work for one, so maybe I don't see it the same way you do. And I will tell you this. If you see it differently, I would love to hear your opinion. Seriously, I'd love to sit down with you for coffee and, and have you have you um, tell me kind of how church is as bad as flying. But um, in order to induce you, I want to offer you a voucher for a companion fare to any service we offer for the rest of the year. So... <laughs> so <laughs> So um, so I hope that the church is not as bad as flying. But unfortunately, sometimes they can be, and particularly in that one area, the area of uh, uh, two lines, that sometimes churches have, uh, you know, whether people admit it or not, they've got that premier one-class gold advantage titanium elite membership, and then they've got kind of the other membership. And... Uh, you know they're not supposed to do that. There, I mean, there's there's an important reason there. You know, I mean, uh, it might just be resentment, right? You know, you just wish you were one yourself, Luke. But but it's not just that. There actually is an important theological reason why churches should not have elite membership, and the reason is because it encourages looking sideways instead of looking up. When we make comparisons among each other, we're looking the wrong direction. We're supposed to be looking up. And instead we look sideways, and that only leads to one of two errors. Uh, basically, both of the errors come out of pride. Pride is pride is the sin. It's not just one sin. It is the sin that all the other sins come from. And so it leads to one of two errors. Either you look around and you say, well, I'm not as bad as she is. Or, you know, well, I'm bad, but I'm still better than he is. So you start making those sort of comparisons. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He wrote, he wrote a book. Um, I've got, he wrote two books. He wrote actually many books, but this is one of my favorite volumes because it's my two favorite C.S. Lewis books in one volume. So C.S. Lewis wrote, um, uh, about pride. He said this. Oh, well, it's up on the screen. He said, the first step about pride, the first step about getting rid of pride is realizing that you are proud, that nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. The reason the church has this problem, the reason so many churches deal with the problem of comparisons, is because we are prideful creatures. And we're probably most fooling ourselves when we think we're not. So if you're, you're saying to yourself, I'm not, I'm not proud, well, ask some other people around you, you know, am I proud? So how, how am I proud? Offer them a free travel voucher. Um, so, so one of the things, um, uh, one of the things about pride is that it's it's it deludes us. We we don't realize we 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 have pride, but the other thing is it leads to comparisons. Sometimes we say we're better than people. Sometimes um, we say we're worse. If we say we're better than people, that's actually a real danger to us. In the same or in the the other book in the same volume, in in C.S. Lewis's uh, Screw Tape Letter, he imagines a conversation between two tempt two devils who are trying to tempt someone, and uh, early in the book. The, the first devil says, I noticed that your patient, the person you're tempting, um, has become a Christian. Well, you're gonna, you're gonna punish, be punished for that because that's not supposed to happen. But now the question is, how do we fix this problem? How do we solve the problem of this guy becoming a Christian? Well, he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army, with banners. I don't mean the church the way that the devil sees the church. He says instead, he says, um, 
next screen. He says, that I confess is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. So he says, what can you do? How is the church your ally? Well, next screen, he says, when he, your, your patient, your, your victim, when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees the neighbors that he has been avoiding up until now. And he says, you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. And he paints a picture of how they sing off key or whatever else they do wrong. Um, and then last screen, he says, he says, it matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know them to be a great warrior on the enemy, enemy's sides. No matter, your, your patient is blind. He can't see those things. So he says, the problem with comparisons is you don't see things the way you're supposed to. You don't know whether the guy who sings off key is actually an incredible warrior on the side of Christ. So you just don't know that. So that's one of the dangers with comparisons. The other danger with comparisons is if you if you are in the other category, you're you're the kind of person who looks around and says, I'm not as good as all that. I look in here and I see people who have got so much of a head start on me, I will never be where they are. I will never be able to be the kind of Christian that this person is. They're so awesome. And I just am never going to be that. I might as well pack it in. So the two risks, one is that you start looking down at people. The other is you look up at people and say, I can't do that. But God didn't call us because he he knew some of us were good and some of us were bad. He called us because he knew we were all dead and he wanted to bring us to life. And so Paul talks the exact, he says that same thing to the church in Corinth. So if you've got your scriptures, I want to look at this passage uh, where he where he says this. Paul has just been... Um, He's just explained the foolishness of the cross. He said, he said, what God has done with the cross makes no sense by earth, earthly wisdom. That it doesn't make any sense that God would come down out of heaven where everything is awesome and uh, suffer and bleed and die here on earth for people. He says that makes no sense in our way of thinking, but obviously it made sense to God. And now he continues this. He says, consider your own call. Consider the when you first heard and and it actually dawned on you that maybe it was true that God actually cared about you. Okay, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Uh, this is this is how wise Paul is. This is why we're still talking about Paul two thousand years ago. Paul is about to insult them. He's about to say you're not all that, and so he begins by saying, "Brothers and sisters," he's saying, "Hey, we're all in the same boat. None of us are all that." And actually, there is real wisdom. If you're gonna, if you're gonna have to talk to somebody, you're gonna have to have a hard conversation with somebody, it is great if you can put me too in the sentence. So he says, you're my brother, you're my sister. So he says, he says, consider your call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Paul is actually being, um, he's using understatement here. He says, none of you. Let's be honest. You know, I, I, I know who you all are. I founded the church in Corinth. It was just a couple of years ago. He says, let me think, um, how many of you are wise? Um, none of you. Okay. Um, so he says, um, how many of you were powerful? Let's see, that would be zero. Um, and um, none of you were of noble birth. He says, not many of you were of noble birth. He says, look around you. I mean, be honest. None of you are all that. Okay. There's no, there's no nobility in that church. There's nobody who's rich. There's nobody who's important. There's nobody who's a philosopher who can discuss the Epicureans and the Stoics. That's what they meant by wise. He says, none of you are all that. But God. But God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. What does he mean by that? Does he mean God likes to humiliate people? No, because look what he looks at the way he explains it. He says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. He says, and this is this is more clear in the biblical language. It's um, it's not the people that this is remark this remark is aimed at. It's the things, the things that they trust in, the things that they think people are going to be impressed by their wisdom, their their strength, um, their their social class, uh, the things that people lean on, because they think somehow God will be impressed by that. And and Paul is saying that's not going to impress God. That that if those are the things you're hoping God will be impressed by, you need to realize they're nothing. That in God's sight, that's no more impressive than what uh, these these Corinthians, the the ones who weren't wise and weren't um, noble and so forth. What they have, he says, God chose to make people who are trusting in worldly things realize that they're trusting in something that is of no value to God. I mean, God's going to look at it and do one of two things. God's going to either say, um, "Yes, you're right. You're you're very smart. Where do you think you got your intelligence? Right? Yes, you were high born. Who do you think arranged for that? Right? God's either going to say, "Yes, that's true. You are, and it's because of me." Or God's going to say, yes, you are highborn. Why didn't you do something with it? So really, there's no upside here. At best, God will kind of shrug. And at worst, he'll say, and you squandered it. So Paul says, don't trust in things to impress God. He says, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order that... As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, don't trust in things. Don't boast either in your own head or out loud about how you're different from the other people in the church. Don't look sideways, look up. Churches are not supposed to be like airlines. We all have a short line. We've all gotten in the shortest line of all, the line of grace. But... There are no elite members in the church. There's a there's a solution for what do you do if you have pride and and if you think you don't have pride that means you're very proud. If you think you've got pride, what do you do about it? How do you get rid of pride? Well, the answer is service. Paul is going to spend the next couple of chapters talking about the way you get rid of pride, the way you the way you realize who you are in God's sight and how service is the solution to that. In a few in a few uh, chapters, but then at the end of the book, he's going to talk about how service is also the the arena in which God works most powerfully in your life. He talks about spiritual giftedness and the way that God will give you uh, abilities that other people lack, because God will will take the areas where you are serving and lean into them in a way that enables you to do things that you couldn't do on your own. So Paul's going to talk about service, but we don't have to go to Paul to understand this. Uh, Jesus himself said this all all the time. Famously, in uh, Matthew 20, he said that um, if anyone wants to be all that, if anyone wants to be like the high-ranked person in the church, the one everyone admires, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. I heard a talk a couple of years ago by a pastor in 
in Southern California in Los Angeles um, named Hank Fortner. And uh, he's a pastor at a church called um, uh, Mosaic. And he talked about how uh, when, when he joined that church, after a while he said, you know, I should serve here. I want to volunteer in this church. And so he went to the, the volunteer coordinator and said, I'd like to volunteer in this church. And they said, okay, show up um, early Sunday morning and we'll put you to work. And I should I should tell you the way that the, the the place where this church met was in a nightclub. So they met. They found out that you you know nightclubs aren't usually used Sunday morning. So you can usually get a pretty good price on a nightclub because you know they got done with it about two a.m. or whatever. And now um, it's yours, except it's a nightclub. So when Hank got to um, when he got to church that morning, they gave him a bucket and a pair of gloves, and they said, "Go clean the bathrooms." And I don't want to be graphic here. He was graphic at great length. Um, he he it made, made quite an impression on him, obviously. But he talked about he talked about throwing up. And he said, you know, it's not pretty, and we don't like to look at it. But it serves a purpose. It is the body's mechanism for getting rid of a poison. And he said, service is like that. It's how you how you expel the poison of pride by getting down on your hands and knees and cleaning bathrooms. And one of the things I love about that church is no one in leadership, there is no one in the leadership of that church who didn't start cleaning bathrooms. And I think that that's, a, I assure you that Presbyterians are not sent to seminary to learn how to clean bathrooms. But you know what? Maybe they should be. Because these sin, these sin, the reason churches have express elite one pass memberships is because we are prideful creatures. And so Jesus tells us that if we want to be great, we must become a servant. And it is the way that the body expels our pride. So I know, I know many of you serve outside the church. In fact, we're hoping if the rain holds off, we're gonna, we're gonna go serve in our community outside the church today. And I know many of you serve in other ways. You volunteer in different organizations around the city. You have, you have some kind of thing you do outside the church, um, for other people. For some of you, it's, you're a breadwinner. You bring home the bacon and you fry it up in a pan, however that song goes, right? You, um, old commercials. Um, you feed people. You know, instead of going on a nice vacation, you take care of people, uh, 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 children, uh, grandchildren, uh, people that, that are dependent on you. So you serve them. Maybe you serve people outside your home. But we're called particularly to serve the church. There, there's one exception. And that is if you are so broken when you come to this church that you need a time of healing, you need a season to find healing and sanctuary, then we are so glad you're here. And we are happy to host you while God works in your life. But that is, if God has any power at all, that is a season of your life. And so you are called to serve in the church. And I know many of you do. I, mean, I know who mows the lawn. I know, I know who fixes the leaks. I know who, who does all kinds of things in this church. But if you're not serving, let me ask you, why aren't you serving? 
Some of you may say, well, I'm too frail or I'm, I'm too old. Um, my travel schedule doesn't arrange it, doesn't allow that. And I would just say, help us find ways you can serve in the church. Because Jesus says, this is the way that you will become great. This is the arena in which God's Spirit breathes power into you. And it's on us to help you find ways to serve in the church. The church is not supposed to be like flying. There's not supposed to be an easy pass or a pre-check. We're all in the short line, but all of us are equal in God's sight. And if you think you're better, or if you're afraid you're worse, then take no counsel of your pride, and instead serve in the church so you can expel it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for for this book, this challenging book of um, Corinthians that Paul wrote to a church that is so much like our own, a church where people looked at one another and calibrated were they above or below the people next to them. Lord, we ask, we repent of all that, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our brothers and sisters as just like you, children of God. And we pray, Lord, where there is pride in us, that you would help us to identify that and that you would help us to find ways to expel it from us so we can enjoy the grace of humility. We pray it all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.